Hello and welcome to Think Like an Owner. At the start of episodes, we are having brief two-minute Q&A sessions with our sponsors on all things banking, accounting, insurance, due diligence, and more, all in an effort to share helpful tips and knowledge with listeners. Today, we're starting with a Q&A with Jerry Joe from Hood & Strong. Within a quality of earnings report, there are certain adjustments that you make. Can you talk about the different types of adjustments you make and why those are done? Yeah, absolutely. So in a quality of earnings analysis, we typically have two types of adjustments that we make. There's the normalizing adjustments that cover, say, addbacks for personal expenses, one-time items, discretionary expenses. And as the second category is usually accounting adjustments. So think of it as cash to accrual adjustments, revenue recognitions, when the revenue was earned and recognized, and the matching of expenses to revenue. So think of these as accrual expenses and adjustments. Within the these two of categories, not all adjustments are, are created equal. Some are a lot more straightforward than others. For example, owner compensation adjustment, that's ad back, that's a very common one that we, we do and we determine what the replacement cost is. That's a relatively straightforward exercise. The not so straightforward type of adjustments could include, let's say, a carve-out of a division from, from business, and there are certain payroll costs that we can strip and, and remove and add back. And how do we go about doing that, taking 20% of someone's pay and, and remove it? That's not something that is practical, realistic in, in the real world. So we, we have to be very careful with what the basis of these adjustments, what it's really certain that we can get it done. And there's no implications to, let's say, decreasing the revenue by, by just removing an employee. Is it that straightforward? Is it something that can be executed? And there's a lot more judgment involved around the certainties around it and whether it's going to be executable, it's going to happen on a going forward basis. And so when we think about adjustments, we have to kind of bucket them in, into categories, whether it's, it's something that can be supported that actually makes sense in the real world. As far as the accounting adjustment uh, that we come across, revenue recognition is always the key. It's more, many of the small business that we take on, they're not audited. Um, they'll take cash basis as revenue recognition. And what we see a lot is that if a company charges collects a deposit or down payment up front that usually gets put into the books as revenue. But under accrual basis, we want to be able to measure the, the earning profile based on when the revenue is actually earned and recognized. So these general two types of adjustments what we come across quite a bit in the um, smaller business diligence. Thanks, Jerry. To learn more about Hood & Strong, please reach out to Jerry directly at jzhou at hoodstrong.com and visit their search fund landing page at hoodstrong.com for more information. I also want to thank our other sponsors, Live Oak Bank and Oberly Risk Strategies for supporting the show. And now to the episode. Hello and welcome everyone. I'm Alex Bridgman and this is Think Like an Owner. This show seeks out conversations with business owners and private investors to learn how to acquire and run small companies with a special focus on search funds, micro-private equity, and small company operations. You can learn more at alexbridgman.com slash podcast and follow me on Twitter at AEBridgman. And if you like the show, please leave a review and tell a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. I'm also the founder of The Operator's Handbook, a print publication where small company operators share their insights and ideas for building more effective and profitable companies. Articles focus on process improvement, sales, hiring and training, managing culture, and all responsibilities within operating a small company. If you run a small company today and are looking for new ways to grow and improve, subscribe today and join your peers in the endless pursuit of better at thearbitershandbook.com. My guest on this episode is Tony Lane. I met Tony and his wife Cassie at SM Bash in February after several folks strongly recommended I talk with them, and I'm glad they did. Tony and Cassie are lifelong entrepreneurs in various ventures, but by far their most successful venture is Senior Dental Care, now called Aria Care Partners under private equity ownership. Senior Dental Care started as a mobile dental services company for senior care homes and evolved to partner with insurance companies to pay for their services on behalf of patients through Medicare, meaning it didn't cost patients a dime to get dental care. 
Once the insurance aspect clicked, this business exploded and has created life-changing financial results for them both. Our discussion is very story-based as we go through Tony and Cassie's journey, which is fantastic as their story is anything but dull, boring, and smooth. Which brings me to a point about challenges. At the end of the episode, Tony said he was concerned that he'd talked about too many near-death experiences in their business, but I feel these stories are perhaps the most important to share. When we hear stories of successful entrepreneurs today, they rarely share failures and hardships endured during the path to success. And that makes other growing entrepreneurs think that they're failures when they hit a rough patch. Sharing near-death experiences in entrepreneurship is incredibly important as it demonstrates that hardship is normal, even for those that become successful. I hope Tony sharing his near-death experiences encourages others on this podcast and others to share the same. With that, please enjoy my episode with Tony Lane. Thanks, Tony, for coming on the podcast. I'm, it's great to have you, and I, I enjoy getting to meet you and Cassie in SM Bash in Orlando and hear all about the different businesses you were involved in and had started and worked on. So I'm excited that we get to have a full-length episode with each of you because there's, there's so much behind what each of you do. Let's start with you, though. What's the background that led up to what you're working on today? Well, I would echo back to you the same sentiments. It was a pleasure to meet you at the SM Bash and how cool for those guys to put that on. It was super fun to be with everybody, meet so many faces that I've met virtually over the years and to actually sit down and hang out was really cool. I was born into a small town in Florida, into a really good family, but a very rural family. So my dad was the local dentist in our town of maybe 3,000 people. And really today, his dental practice is still kind of the only dental practice in our town. I have six siblings, so a pretty large family. My mom did not work. So I had a great childhood. You know, I had a lot of love at home, just a really great setting to be raised in. When you think that your dad is a dentist, you think you're sort of in the in the upper realm of earnings. But, you know, he charged rates that a small town rural folks could pay. So he wasn't exactly knocking it down. And then he had seven kids and he had a wife that didn't work. And so particularly as, as the kids start getting older and he had to buy a truck for someone every every two years because they turned 16, I would have called us sort of like normal class. Like we were really, my parents are awesome people. My siblings are awesome people and just a really great area to be raised, but not an eight great, a great area to start your station in life if you're hoping to end up, you know, a successful business person. It's a little atypical for that foundation to to produce that outcome. Being raised, I was pretty well told that I was going to be a dentist. My dad had this nice business in town. I'm kind of a people person, always have been. And and my mom thought, oh, well, you'll be perfect for this. Your brother who's ahead of you, he won't do it because he's super smart. He's going to do something really great. <laughs> but you, you're a little behind him. You're just right. You can do this, this part. And so I really was raised with the mentality that I was going to be a dentist and actually kind of believed it growing up. I was raised in a, in a Mormon family. And so as I got to got out of high school, I actually served a church mission. So I spent two years outside of my home area out in Idaho serving a church mission out there, which most people really, really love that, that period kind of coming from our culture. I really didn't. I was really ready to get going. And I would say that I, I just stuck through it, you know, but I learned, I learned an awful lot from that experience. Mostly I learned what it's like to be poor. One of the things you learn on a, on that type of thing is they hand you like $120 a month and that's what you have to survive. And so first couple of months, I bought like a new pair of shoes on the first day or something and I had no money the rest of the month. And I learned real quick that having no money is no fun and that actually having money requires some discipline and some planning. And I came home from that experience and I remember telling my dad when I got home, hey, I, I don't know about this dental thing. I, I kind of want to be rich, <laughs> which I didn't really even know what that meant. I just knew that I wanted something outside of the norm from what I was raised in and what I was sort of raised to expect. I mentioned earlier that my brother ahead of me was like super smart and he he is. He's absolutely brilliant, like, you know, just ACT, just a really sharp guy. And he was in our local county. There's this full ride scholarship that's available for like one candidate a year from the county from this wealthy guy who set up a trust this way. And my brother before me did not get it. And like the foundation acknowledged that they made a mistake on that. And so when I came around the next time, they gave it to me as like an apology. So <laughs> I got like a full ride scholarship to college uh, by default because my brother didn't get it. 
I really wasn't school material, didn't actually think an awful lot about school. But when it's free, it's pretty tough to kind of not go do it, you know. And so I had dated the same girl all the way through high school from literally from like freshman year all the way through. And she was still single when I got home from serving that mission. And so we we reconnected and and uh, got married not long after I had been home. We got married pretty young, actually. So I married my my high school sweetheart and we had this idea that we were going to have like this big house with a white picket fence. And I was going to ride to the dentist office every day and be the dentist and that she would be the hygienist. You know, why not? She can just ride, literally ride with me to work. How picture perfect would that be? You can take a dog with us or something. And so we had this like, I don't know, nirvana in our head that we were going to go after. And so in line with that, she went and became a dental hygienist and bless her heart, like Halfway through her dental hygiene program, I sat her down and I said, hey, this isn't going to happen. I'm not going to be a dentist. I got to even to the point that I have a really weak like system of seeing blood. If I see blood, I get sick. And uh, so it was like crystal clear, Tony, you cannot you cannot do this. So I remember the day I it's hard to even express just how much like expectation there was for me to go this route and get a good degree and get a good job. And don't take risk. And it was just, I was just very much raised with that type of mentality. And so to, to go against that was actually a really big deal, harder than it may sound. So I remember sitting my parents down and saying, Hey, I'm not going to be a dentist. And my mom kind of telling me, You know, you think you're going to make it in this business world and you're just going to end up selling used cars, literally word for word, you know, and telling her, Well, I'm going to sell a lot of them. Okay. So I didn't let it discourage me, even though. Really, she was trying to discourage me out of like a, a parent safety thing, you know, like I want my kid to go get this safe, stable thing. So I, I went to Tallahassee to go to FSU to get an accounting degree. And I started out with this job at Chuck E. Cheese making pizza. And I, I when I got the job, I sat down with the guy that owned it and I said, listen, I'm I'm a little too experienced to come in here and like just put cheese on the pizza. So if you're looking to hire a manager. I'll come in and I'll manage the store for you. It's the first job I'd ever had. He hired me as his manager and I was a total dick. Like I was a total hardliner in that restaurant. And it was an extremely good place to learn how to run business because that is a, it's a shit show, man. Like you're dealing with like 15, 16 year old kids. They're not showing up. There's like parents that are mad because one kid, kid pushed another and like mom's getting invites and people not showing up for work or you're running out of cheese or, you know, you just get flooded with people on a Sunday afternoon because it's a rainy day. And it's actually a really hard business to learn. Probably the hardest business I've ever run, even to date, was this silly little pizza franchise. And so I really climbed up there and became totally in control. I was running running it entirely. The, the owner actually went and built a brand new store in Puerto Rico, and he left and went and ran that one while I ran the one in Tallahassee. And they said, hey, you know, if you really stick around, you can probably make 60 grand a year here. And my dad said, why don't you just stick that out? You don't want to do dentistry. Why don't you just stay as a manager at Chuck E. Cheese? And I realized then, like, these are like seriously divergent visions for my life. And so, you know, they're really discouraging my wife and I from bringing on any debt. And you'll hear a recurring theme through this story of like strength and courage from my wife, because that's where I get it. Like she she just naturally has this strength about her and this courage about her that has carried me through the years. And so this whole time she's given me the courage just to, to kind of stand up to the expectation and say, let's go chase what you want to chase. So uh, there was this guy who was going to church where we went to church and he was in the real estate business and he was actually really successful. He didn't live like a successful life, but behind the scenes, he had a really robust net worth and he sold like really awesome farms and big, big timber properties, which I thought was super cool because I was raised in this rural town where you hunt fish and you outdoor guy. And so I got in with him and I said, hey, let me join you. And he said, well, I've got this large firm. You know, I don't know where you're going to sit in this, but I, I'll tell you out of the gate, like if you're going to play in this game, don't go sell a townhouse, you know, go sell a five million dollar farm and make some actual real money. And so six weeks in, they told me when I got the license, they said, you know, expect that you won't make any money for your first year in real estate. And at six weeks, I was given the title of the highest performing salesperson in the whole firm. And I did it's because I did exactly what he 
suggested. I simply started focusing on really large acres tracks. My wife and I went to this little program where they were helping you figure out your vision in life. And this is important because you'll hear about it later. And you had to write down like, what was your, and we're still very young here. We're like 21, 22 years old. They said, what, what are you trying to accomplish? Like, what's your end game here? And I remember writing down that I wanted to own my own 3000 acre farm. And you know, that was my like nirvana. Like I wanted to have like a river on it. I wanted to have a camp where all my brothers could come. We could hunt and we could fish and we could ride horses and do all the things that we love to do. And so I not set that Chuck goal e. as a, not at Chuck E. Cheese, maybe on a Sunday if it's raining, but <laughs> <laughs> along with everybody else in the whole town. Uh, so that was the goal. And I had done the one real estate deal and I saw right away that that just, I did a little bit of study and at the time, so this is back in 2002, the starting salary for somebody with an accounting degree in the state of Florida was $24,000. And the, the property that I sold in my first six weeks at this real estate firm, I actually made about $40,000 selling this piece of property. And it was owned by this like really wealthy guy up in Georgia. But it wasn't hard for me to do that math, like, you know, six weeks and I made $40,000 or I can work eight to five all year to make 24000 for someone else and have a boss. And I had total freedom. I was outside in the woods. I was like, this is great. And so I went to school, got a real estate license and I shifted my I dropped out of FSU, their accounting program I was one semester in. You can imagine back home, this is kind of raising hell, right? This is like, what are you doing dropping out of, you got a full ride scholarship. What are you doing? You know, I shifted to a nighttime program at a community college where Flagler College was putting on this nighttime program to get an accounting degree. So enrolled in that. And during the day, I was just hustling. I was literally trying to put deals together. And I came across this foreclosure house in Thomasville, Georgia, which is like, 45 minutes away from where I lived and it was owned by a bank. And I just rode over to the bank. I walked in and I said, Hey, I'd, I'd like to talk to the president of the bank. You could never do this today, but this was sort of back before the Dodd-Frank laws, you know, when lending changed, went in and I sat down with him and I said, look, you've got a problem. You've got these foreclosures coming in the door and you've got a certain basis in them that you need to recover. Why don't you just give them to me? I'll go remodel them. And I'll resell them and I'll repay you 100% of your basis and you'll take no loss on any of your, your foreclosures. And he agreed to do it. And so without any loans, they would give me their foreclosure houses and I would remodel them all day long. And I didn't know how to do it. So my wife and I would go to Lowe's and Lowe's back then would hold these one hour seminars where they would teach you to lay tile or they would teach you to like change out a sink or a faucet or something like that. And so we would attend these one hour courses and then we would go up to our literally crack houses. I mean, these were dumpy little crack house foreclosures and we would remodel these things and then resell them. And then we started taking that and we started rolling that into buying little pieces of land. And so we'd get a piece of land and we'd say, maybe it was 20 acres. We might divide it four times into five acre pieces and sell each five acre piece. And, you know, a little, a little bit like, not all of this was just magic on our part. This was, you sort of couldn't screw up in the sort of 2003, 2004 range on real estate in the state of Florida. It was such a boom time in the real estate market that it didn't matter what you paid, really. It was going up from whatever you paid. And so we were buying stuff. And I remember I was actually in college when I made my first land deal that in a two week stretch, I made $150,000 off of buying a piece for, that was on, on a river, 75 acres. And I flipped it to this guy that I knew two weeks later and I made $150,000 off of it. And that was the moment. That particular year, I actually made $400,000 while I was in college, just flipping properties and fixing up little rentals and that sort of thing. And I said, you know what? I'm not worried about this degree. Like it's, it's free. So I'm going to take it and put it in my back pocket, but this isn't who I am. Like this, this hustling, that's who I am. I actually really like this. So graduated in 2005 with a little bit of just kind of a token accounting degree. And the first step that I took is I became a licensed general contractor so that I could start building my own projects. And I started looking for places where I could build a subdivision, you know, something much more large. And the downside to that is that also 
you know, starts to bring into your, your game a lot of debt. And so I did a couple of projects down in Panama City Beach where I built out, you know, one project had 20 something houses, one of them had 12 houses. And so this was going on. These things take a couple of years. And so we're sort of racking up debt and we're bumping along and things are okay. And then, you know, one day we woke up and you'll probably remember this, Alex, but you woke up and like simultaneously, like Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans and then freaking Lehman Brothers collapsed. And and then the whole world just like went to shit, like just literally like overnight, it just absolutely stopped. Everything collapsed. The stock market plummeted. They had the, I don't know if you remember the Wall Street dollar menu when you could buy like Bank of America for a buck, Citigroup was a buck, like everything just collapsed and it was absolutely terrifying. And so at this point I had brought on, I had, I had gotten pretty ambitious and I had, I had kind of bought out a guy locally, a fellow named Brad Bailey, who had heavy equipment. And so at this point we had bulldozers and we had excavators and we had dump trucks and I had a partner and we kept hustling, but it was really hard because really large companies that had lots of employees were coming down and bidding on little tiny jobs that normally a six or eight employee company would do just so they could break even just to make their payroll. And so we were getting crushed and I came home and I, I had a, one of those little dinner table meetings with my wife where I said, I, she wasn't working at the time. And I said, I think, I think you need to go back to work. I think you need to go get a dental hygiene job. We honestly, we need some money coming in to help sort of keep things afloat while we try to figure out where this world is going right now. And so she got on Craigslist. I don't know if they, you know, you remember Craigslist. That was like a big thing back then today. I guess it's still around. I don't know. But she oh, got yeah, on Craigslist. Oh, it's still around? <laughs> yeah. There's actually, uh, every so often there's businesses for sale too on Craigslist. It's, it's kind of wild. No way. You could buy a business off Craigslist still? Oh yeah. Go to the for sale section, select business, and then sort price high to low. And every so often there's a business that pops up, usually for sale by the owner too. Oh my gosh, Alex. I wish you hadn't have told me that because now I'm going to go home and spend the evening laying in bed looking <laughs> through all the Craigslist businesses for sale, getting caught yeah. up on my, what I've been doing. Tell me missing. what you find. Yeah. So she finds a job on Craigslist that is doing dental hygiene in nursing homes, which is like, never heard of that. So she goes and applies. And, you know, like I told you, see, this woman's crazy. She is so ambitious. She's so courageous and just fearless, just absolutely fearless. So she comes home two weeks in and she says, we can do this ourselves. And I'm like, honey, first off, we just need a W-2. We don't need like another investment to make right now. Just, just go get a paycheck, please. And bring that paycheck home so we can keep, you know, keep our heads above water. And second, they're going to sue us if we just leave and go start your own business, like competing with them. And she could have cared less, like none of that worked. And she looked at me and she said, look, I know you're scared. I know I'm scared, too. But that doesn't matter. Like, it's not an excuse for us to just sideline ourselves. We're going to do this and you're going to help me and we're going to make it work. And so while she was employed at this company. I would go to nursing homes that she didn't service, that technically this company wasn't servicing. And I would take literally a suit in the extra cab of my pickup. I'd go to my construction jobs. I'd be in the ditch with a shovel because at this point I was like one of the crew guys instead of just an owner because this business was struggling and I know how to work hard. So I'd stop at a rest area and take a napkin bath, put on a suit and I'd go into these nursing homes and sit down with the administrator. And I said, hey, I don't think you have any dental care for these folks available. And they didn't. None of them ever did. And I said, well, here's what I'll tell you what I'll do. My dad is a dentist and my wife is a hygienist. I don't know how we'll make any money at this, but if you'll let us, we'll come in and we'll provide dental care to everybody in this facility. And my dad will do it for free and my wife will do it for free until we figure out a way to make a business out of this. And I would go to six or eight or 10 different nursing homes and just make this pitch until I had the first one signed up. And I remember it well. It was called the Manor at Blue Water Bay in Niceville, which is a couple of hours away from us. They agreed to to take a stab at it. And so sold this idea on my dad that we would, <laughs> you know, the, a good dad, you know, be a good dad and just come work for free for, for us while we figure this out. And he agreed. He was kind of retiring. So the just conveniently kind of at this turn in our life, my wife and I had been trying to have have kids at this point for quite some time. And the doctors had basically said, listen, this isn't going to happen. 
two rounds of in vitro fertilization, no kids. Pretty well need to just reading the tea leaves here, but this isn't going to happen for you guys. So we had decided to go an adoption route. And my son was born two days before the first day of clinical of our healthcare company. And so my wife left the hospital early with my dad. They went and provided clinical services at the Manor of Blue Water Bay. The hospital that my son was born at was not too far away. I left with the baby by myself from this hospital, swung by the nursing home and picked my wife up (laughs) on our way home to take this child home. And so we say that the birth of our of our real success in venture and business was at the birth of our son, because very much it very much was. So we go back home. We've got a, a nursing home to service and we. We set up shop in an extra bedroom at the house and all evening we would take turns. My wife and I, we would dial families and ask them if they wanted to sign up for our dental program. Literally, there's a baby next door screaming, you know, and somebody needs to change a diaper. Somebody needs to feed a baby. But meanwhile, we're we're trying to build this business and we're also trying to, run, you know, trying to not fail at this construction company in a world crisis and all of this. And so the business was not going very well initially. We started providing care. And we were not getting paid because in the state of Florida and virtually every state, adult dental is not covered by Medicaid. That's why you recently saw one of the things the Democrats had in in Biden's big Build Back Better was they were expanding dentistry to seniors. It didn't pass, but that was because there is no program to provide dentistry for seniors. And we didn't know that when we went and told these homes we'd provide all this care (laughs) at no cost. We had no way of getting reimbursed. And we were doing some studies online and we came across a study by this think tank out of Wharton. There was a, a Wharton professor in where's that in Pennsylvania, right? Yeah, Penn. Yeah, at Penn. And uh, a guy named John Whitman. In fact, I think he's still a professor there today. He had this think tank called the Trex Institute, T-R-E-C-S, and it stands for Targeting Revolutionary Elder Care Solutions. And the state of Florida had hired the Trex Institute to help it figure out how do you solve the oral health epidemic in nursing homes. And at the very, in the very last page of his study, so I was just online, like filtering information. And I came across a study in the very last page, he says something along the lines of that there's some federal laws that would support a dental insurance that the residents have a right to buy with their funds that they get from the government. And that theoretically you could solve the oral health epidemic, with this insurance model. I didn't know what it was. So you couldn't, Medicare wouldn't pay for the direct dental costs or that service, but they would pay for insurance premium is what you mean. That's correct. That's correct. There was this rule at the federal level that said, while we won't pay for the care, we'll pay for an insurance premium if you have insurance for the item. And so he, he knew an insurance company that was interested in underwriting a product like this. I flew to Kentucky uh, it was my first introduction to John Cornett and Daryl Wells in uh, Louisville. Great guys. They took a gamble on Cassie and I. Absolutely. We consider them heroes of our lives today still because of the gamble that they took. Like, we were just you know, just these two kids with an idea. We didn't have anything. That. How old were you at that point? 28, 28, 29. And so they created an insurance product and we went back to the nursing homes and we sold this insurance product to the residents. And then we submitted this stuff to the state of Florida. We said, okay, they should get funding now. Well, they, they didn't actually even know what to do with it. And so we had to go sit down at the time department of children and families was headed by a lady named Carrie Sheffield. I literally sat down with Carrie Sheffield myself. I literally created in Excel, the form that you use to submit this stuff to a caseworker to get it adjusted. And for a number of years, that same form was the form you submitted anywhere in the state of Florida, if you submitted for this stuff and we figured it out and we, we kind of got the wheels moving. And it was at this moment that my prophecy came true and the group that she had originally been hired by filed their lawsuit against us. And they sued her and they said, Hey, you stole our idea. And so, you know, if you can imagine, like, we've never been sued, we've never we're terrified. Like we literally, yeah, I remember terrifying. like it came across the fact machine at my dad's dental office. Like my mom showed up at church with it, you know, it was just, a, it was just so dramatic, just this terrifying moment of, Oh my gosh, we're going to get crushed by the big guy. And my wife, I was ready to just shut the business down. Like, Oh shit, shut it down. This is, you know, we're getting sued. My wife is like, no, like we're going to fight this lawsuit. There's nothing, you know, uses America. You should be able to 
you know, chase your dreams and, and we're going to fight this. And so we settled that lawsuit right away. Like it was like a $50,000 check and we settled that lawsuit. So it was another moment of like her courage that sort of carried us through the challenge we were having. So we get through that piece and things literally just start clicking. This business starts getting funding on every policy and it's a fully recurring level of funding, right? Every single person that buys gets their premium funded to them every single month. So they make their premium payment and we've got this capitation arrangement with this insurance company out of Kentucky. And every single month we start getting paid on everybody that's enrolled to participate in our program. And it just, it starts snowballing. And we realize, okay, we're going to need to, we're going to need to scale up here. We need to get a, a marketer. And we had initially agreed for this insurance company to do our sales for us. And we thought, well, we want to do our own sales. We want to kind of, let's move vertical here. Let's get vertically integrated across this space. And so we decided to set up our own agency. And this is the, the worst we've ever been sort of extorted or treated bad in business. We brought on a guy, a local guy to do our marketing. And he sort of scammed us and said, hey, he had verified it with the state of Florida that if you're not a licensed agent, you couldn't own a majority of an insurance agency. And so we didn't, you know, foolishly, we didn't hire an attorney to verify that, which actually wasn't true. And so we gave this guy 50% equity in this agency that we created because for free, by the way, he put nothing in this business for the fact that, hey, legally we have to, or so we thought. It wasn't all that long later, like eight or 10 months later, we actually came across the regulation and realized that he had kind of duped us and we we fired him. And of course, then he sued us and said, hey, I own half of all this business. And you know, I invested nothing, but I I got half of it. And so there was this big lawsuit that spun up over over us being kind of wrongfully dealt with by this guy. And it it continued on. You'll see as we go through this story, like it continued on for eight more years of you know, he had like a contingency firm where he didn't have to spend any money on legal fees. And the whole time we we're having to fund a lawyer to, to, you know, to try to get out of this mess with this guy. Absolutely the most unscrupulous character I've ever dealt with. And it was a, a huge lesson for us in like, got to have your guard up as you go into business with people to make sure you team up with people that are of good character. And so that was like a scary moment that happened. So we did the first lawsuit with the group and got out of that and triumphed over that. Another moment where Cassie said, you know, we're going to fight this and we're going to win. And the business just at this point, it, it really started. It really started going. So we're building out the state of Alabama. We're building out the state of Louisiana. We're building out the state of Iowa. The only reason we went to Iowa is because my brother went to dental school there and he had like a dental buddy who we could hire to be our dentist. And so we just, we didn't, I'd like to sound, you know, sound like we were like these business masterminds, but we weren't like, we were just absolutely hustling anywhere. We thought we could grow our business. We were just absolutely pushing it, bumped into the Carolinas at some point along the way. And this is a wild curveball. We get some visitors from the state agency in Florida. It's called ACA. I'm sure you've heard of ACA, which is Agency for Healthcare Administration. And they're, oh, no. they're like, I've not heard of that. Okay. They're, think of them as like the police force over Medicaid. Okay. Gotcha. So I'm, I'm like out on a sales call and I get a call from the office and they say, Hey, these investigators just showed up. And I'm like, Oh shit, what? <laughs> For what? And they said, No, no particular reason, but they just left their card and they left. Two days later, I'm like riding down the road in Panama City Beach and I get a phone call from this orthodontist and he says, hey, you know, my name is so and so. I know that ACA investigators were in your office two days ago. I know what they found and I can keep you out of this trouble. Uh, should we meet? And I'm like, shit. Yeah, yeah, we should meet. Let's let's uh, let's we where do you want to sit out at? You know, like, hey, so we meet at a Cracker Barrel in Tallahassee and this guy says, hey, my wife is is senior legal counsel for ACA. And she showed me what they found in your office, which was we had a, we actually did have a flaw in our legal structure. Like one of the LLCs I owned, I couldn't, my dad had to own it as a licensed dentist. So we had a problem. And he says, hey, we can make this go away. If you'll pay us $5,000 a month, we'll just get rid of the file or we're just going to let the hammer drop and you guys are going to have to go you know, deal with this problem that you've created. And I'm like, well, it's not really a problem. Like it is a dentist owned, like he is a licensed dentist. It's just, I like created that LLC in like five minutes with a credit card myself. It's not like it's uh, egregious here, you know, but we got extorted by this guy. And so FDLE got involved and for months, my cell phone was tapped. And every time this guy would call, 
FDLE was like listening in on my cell phone. And every time they would arrange meetings for me to meet with him, I'd have to meet them behind Sam's glove and put on like this giant Tommy Hilfiger shirt with a camera in the button <laughs> and like a key fob that had like a recorder in it. And I'd go sit down with this guy and he would extort us for money out of this in exchange for like scuttling some problem the state had found. And this was this stuff was like extremely stressful. You're in the middle of trying to grow a business. You're hiring employees. You know, you're fielding, you know, ridiculous lawsuits from people that sort of misled you. You got this guy out of the state who's throwing this curveball of, hey, I'm going to I'm going to like extort you for money or or uh, let this little flaw you've got, you know, take you down. And finally, they arrest this guy. Like when I would meet with him at Cracker Barrels, they they FDLE officers undercover, like stationed throughout the restaurant. And finally, like they arrest him one day while I'm eating with him, like right there in front of me. Just the most wild, bizarre. I doubt anybody on this podcast has ever, ever talked to you about being extorted by a state while they're building their company. And so finally, the state of Florida comes to us and they're like apologizing. They're like, we're sorry. You know, that's not how that's supposed to go. You know, go ahead and clean up your legal structure. You're fine. Just, uh, you know, don't sue us is basically sort of what the plea was. So we were able to get everything fixed. And so I share all this to say, like, it's a like, like it can be really scary and it can be really challenging to get through the crap that comes up when you're doing a business and you can do things not perfect and not even know you're doing something not perfect. And it can create all kind of, of headwinds. And it just takes it takes a certain amount of dog in you, like just some grit to be able to power through stuff like that and not let it completely derail you where you say, you know what, let me just go back to Chuck E. Cheese and get a salary. <laughs> My mom was right. You and know. you're raising a young kid through all this too. Yes. At this point we had one, one baby at home. That's right. Yeah. So we're rocking along. So we sort of get through what I call earning our stripes. We got through all of the, what was probably the, the most stressful things we ever dealt with. And we had this season of several years where the business just grew. We didn't have any legal problems with the business. We didn't have any, we had no debt in the company. And all of a sudden, I remember the first day we pulled a P&L and we really weren't even very organized. Like we were just looking at our bank account and it was just growing and we weren't even, we didn't even really have a P&L at, at some, you know, most points. And we finally produced a P&L and I remember seeing it and we had made $70,000 that month. And the next month we made like 80 and the next month we made like 120 and the next month we're making like 200 grand debt free out of this thing. And it's just growing and growing and growing. And so we start thinking about, you know, what's the goal here? What are we doing with this business? If we're going to keep growing, we probably need to start doing some some acquisitions. And so we contact this group out of Chicago. And this was our very first acquisition. And it's a guy, a guy named Frank Camarda. He had a company up there called Senior Dent. Frank was an awesome guy, actually, just a He's an interesting character, a really different personality, but also like this just super nice grandpa guy. And so we merged with Frank's company. And 90 days later, Frank knew of another competitor. And so we went and bought that too. And so we spent, oh, I don't know, we probably spent 10 or $12 million buying companies in a stretch of, of three months. And we had done, we had done none of that to date. So this was very new. So all of a sudden, We've now got a board and we've never done this before. So we go to our very first board meeting and one of the board members actually has season tickets to the Kansas City Chiefs. And the deal was after the board meeting, the next day, we'd all get up. We'd go to the Kansas City Chiefs game together. And at this board meeting, Frank and sort of his panel of equity holders said, hey, well, let's talk about distributions. And Cassie and I are like, what do you mean distributions? Like we've never distributed. We're each on salary for 40 grand a year still like we're. We don't even have a nice home. What do you mean distributions? We don't want to take any money out of this company. We're like, we're in this for the real, th real thing. Like we want to build an awesome company. We don't want distributions. And he's like, hold on. I, I have to have 80% of the earnings come out every single month. I'm 70 something years old. I don't want to leave any money in this company. And we reached a massive impasse in our very first board meeting to the point that we literally said, Hey guys, if this is how this is going, you really just need to take your ball and go home. We need to undo all of these, all of this that we've done. And you can imagine that's like easy to say and not easy to do. And so over the course of the next six months, we did a tax-free spinoff where we took their, 
whatever, I'm using generic numbers here, but to call it five or six million dollar block of business. And we literally spun it back out of our company and we kept the second one that we bought. And so we ended up still larger, but having gone through a real learning curve. Yeah, no kidding. That's That sounds expensive and incredibly time consuming. Yes, both expensive, time consuming, distracting, disheartening. You know, you have all these goals and ambitions when you go into an acquisition or a transaction. You're modeling out all this success that you're going to have. And you know, at this point, we're actually starting to develop some business savvy just organically. We're starting to get pretty darn good at financial modeling. We're starting to get pretty good at designing a good hierarchy of management beneath us. At this point, we've probably got 200 employees in our downline. And so you know, we're, we're pretty robust at this point anyway, and we're starting to really get our wings as far as business people, both both Cassie and myself. And at the same time, it would be disingenuous if I didn't say like it's it's starting to tax our relationship. Like, you know, you go into the office every day. You've been through some really stressful things creating this business and, you know, you're with each other all day and then you're with each other all night. It's very, very, very hard to shut the business off and turn the family on and like, you know, delineate between the two. And there was just an awful lot of sort of bleed through between those two things. And it was, it's just, it was really starting to tax us. And I think she would, I think she would say the same. And so we, we get through this piece and we end up with resident dental, which was the second one that we had bought. And it came actually with a really robust infrastructure. They had really good software. They had a CFO. They had a CEO. Like we we had none of these things. We still had QuickBooks, <laughs> which we weren't running well. They had a really robust built out platform within Salesforce that they had customized themselves. It's still today how they how we run the business. It was that good. You know, even after the private equity firm hiring outside firms to really scrub it and figure out what you should do, we're still using that same platform. So we picked up out of that a lot of really good sophistication in business. We doubled the company from the time we bought them. So if you take resident dental and senior dental care, which was our brand, and you combine those two, in the course of two years, two and a half, we doubled that company again. And it was already pretty good size. It was probably already 20 or 30 million bucks. And we doubled it in just a couple of years again. And that started bringing some attention from private equity but in the middle of this, we I was out in Kansas City one day, so another curveball, out in Kansas City one day, and my wife calls, and she says, hey, this being a small town, it's a total HIPAA violation, but like somebody from the health department called her and said, hey, a, a lady showed up. She's about to have a baby. She's she's in, you know not from the States, and she doesn't know what to do with it, and she doesn't want to keep it. Uh, do you want it? <laughs> and we're like, like when's she going to have the kid? And they're like, two weeks. And so my wife calls me and she shares this with me and she says, oh, and I said, yes. And I was <laughs> like, like, you said yes before you called me? She's like, yeah, I've, I've already agreed. I was super thrilled by it, super happy about it. So in the middle of this, Linux came into our family. So we now have Linux and Liam. Those names are important because they kind of play into a name later in this story. So Linux comes into the family, which starts to tug at Cassie a little bit. She at this point, it's carrying a little bit of mom guilt over how hard she worked while Liam was an infant. And she's got a little bit of internal pressure inside of her not to repeat that. She sort of has this desire to go home and be mom rather than be mom who also runs a, a very large business. And literally by now, we've probably got 350 employees. And so it's, you know, it's this juggernaut that she's, she's, I'm involved, but Cassie's absolutely the entire stretch of this time was like the systems person, like the process, the the brains for how you make the business run. And from the time Cassie steps out to go be a mom, even through today, the business has never run as high a contribution margin as the time when she was the one running it. And so over time, I've really gained a tremendous amount of respect for her, actually her managerial ability from just a process and business operations perspective. Me, I'm a transactionalist. Like I, I want to buy the next thing. I want to grow the next state. She is much more into the, you know, make a business run well. So, so we go a little while and Cassie finally wants to step out. And somewhere in the middle of this, I started getting a desire to 
you remember earlier, my my real goal was to have my own farm. And so I started shopping for a farm to buy. And just on a whim, I called this really large company and I said, hey, you guys have this head. I had bought like 500,000 acres. And I went and met with them and I said, hey, you've got this 1800 acres over here on a river, <laughs> you know, just not far from where I live. Would you sell us that 1800 acres just outside of Tallahassee here in Florida? And they agreed to sell it to us. It turned out to be just like a unbelievable deal where the trees that were on this, if we were to cut the trees, would would nearly overpay the property. And they had just acquired it. They really didn't know it. And so we managed to, in the middle of this, go out and acquire this large farm that was the initial foundation for what is now called Linium Farms, which is Linux and Liam combined, which is our, our family office, which is kind of how you and I met. But that was sort of the birth the birth of Linium Farms. So back to sort of where we're at, Cassie is starting to feel the a tug to, to leave the business and go be mom. And she, at the same time, we get news that Citizens, our largest competitor in the space, has acquired Trident, which is our kind of like second largest competitor. And they've also acquired On Health, which is like our third largest competitor. And so all of the sudden, the competition had like consolidated against us. And we were the outliers. And all of these folks were, the backing of them is like hundreds of millions of dollars. And the backing of ours is Cassie and I. Like at this point, we own this business. It's 100% debt-free. It's throwing off a ton of cash every single month. But we don't feel capable of like taking on this juggernaut that we now face. And so they reached out to us and they said, hey, we'll buy you guys. And they put a number in front of us that was like, frankly, more than we ever it's just more than we ever dreamed possible for ourselves. Just in the sake of confidentiality, I'll steer clear of it. But, you know, it was tens of millions of dollars against something that you owe nothing on. Right. So it was going to be extremely life changing. But at the same time, I had been being chased by a guy out of San Francisco at the private equity firm, a guy named John Caselli with Serent Capital. And had basically almost struck the deal with citizens. Their offer was so strong. I thought, we should just go ahead and do this deal. Call John Caselli. He was actually on vacation somewhere up in Manhattan or something. He said, if you're willing, I'll be there tomorrow if you'll pick me up at the airport. And so I pick him up at the airport the next day. We sit down in, in the office and my wife comes and she's really unhappy about him being there. She really doesn't want to sell the business. She's really kind of caving to pressure from me, feeling like we're kind of outgunned. So this is sort of one of those moments where her courage wasn't prevailing and maybe my weakness was or my calculus that, hey, we've got too many eggs in this one basket that now has like the whole enemy against it, this giant juggernaut against us. Yeah. Did that feel pretty scary having an, a huge juggernaut facing off against you? Like in terms of the the fear you had at various earlier stages with being sued or other competitors, like where on the scale did this point feel for you? So the stuff before it was so much scarier because we could sort of lose everything in those early things, right? If you were, if you were somehow violating healthcare regs, like that's really scary shit, you know? And if you get sued early in a deal and it just takes the wind out from under you or somebody prevails and they win some stupid lawsuit saying they own half of your business because you hired them and they kind of tricked you into this, that can really be disruptive. disruptive. At this point, you know, we're very financially conservative. This business has been making millions of dollars a year for 10 years for Cassie and I. So we still had basically every dollar it had ever made, you know, socked away and, and, and it was either in land or it was in, a, in some diversified stock portfolio or something. And so this was a little less scary because if the business was to fail the next day, we were still very strong financially and we would just go do something else. So I would say it was scary in the sense that we could lose the value of what we had created it was not as scary in the sense that it couldn't put us back on to ground zero, right? But we had checked those boxes and we had been so principled in not blowing what we had made that we had a really, really robust nest egg to fall back on. But all that being said, it was it was enough to give us momentum to entertain talks. And so John Caselli comes in and Cassie's not happy with it. She's not happy he's there. <laughs> She's not even really nice to him, particularly, you know, the meeting did not go well. And just like what saved this deal 
is that he went to get an Uber from our town back to the, he didn't even ask for a ride back. He was going to get an Uber to go back to the airport because the meeting was just like full attention. It just didn't flow well. Well, there was no Uber. There is no Uber in our little town. And so he had to come back inside. He's like, hey, can you give me a ride to the airport, which is an hour away? And we're like, sure, hop in the truck. <laughs> and that saved the deal because the first thing that happened, like my wife had him like as like this little captive audience. She turned around to him in the back seat, And her first question, I'll never forget it. She said, so who'd you vote for? <laughs> totally, totally put him straight on the, the spot. Point. Straight to the point. And what she was really asking is like, cut the shit. Who are you really? Like, don't come in here. It's like California private equity into our little, little small town. You know, who are you for real? And he started talking about working in his family business. He started talking about you know him as like a real person. And she got to see that. And it totally changed her perception toward doing business with him. So immediately he circled right back with his principal, which is a guy named David Kennedy. David met us in Tallahassee. This is kind of funny because, you know, we haven't done a whole lot of traveling at this point in our lives. And so we're not like, we don't know all the best restaurants and that sort of thing. And so we make a reservation at Outback, Outback Steakhouse to take this like, you know, megastar from this private equity firm in San Francisco. And we meet at Outback and, and he, he tells us, he's like, this is a good restaurant. It's a good restaurant. <laughs> and I remember telling him later, I said, you absolutely in selling mode at that point. So we go back. That next day, we go back to the office and we literally with just a whiteboard and that principal and John Caselli and Cassie and myself shut into a conference room for the day. We did the deal. We we spent time talking about what gave us anxiety with the consolidation of our competitors, how we felt outgunned. We talked about what it would require to overcome that. We talked about our growth and the durability of our revenues. We talked about what we would do with this business if we had more money. And after all of that, he stood up and he walked up to the board and he scratched out a deal where he would buy 60% of the business and we would keep 40% and we would roll that equity over. Cassie and I looked at ourselves and we said, maybe it was more money than we'd ever thought possible for ourselves at that point, you know? And we said, let's do it. And we shook hands that day. We didn't even like go away as a couple and talk about it or ponder on it. Really. We just said, this feels right. Let's, let's go. So we went through the process of a private equity investment, which is like a colonoscopy, you know, on your business. Yep. <clears throat> it's very painful and embarrassing. And like, you know, they're doing all this digging and got the deal closed. And Cassie stepped out and went to be mom, went to scratch that itch that she had of, of staying home full time as a mom, which when you interview her you'll, her, you'll see she's grateful she did that. But that's not who, you know, she wasn't wired to just sit home. And so it took work for her to suppress her at ambitions enough to to devote that time but i think she's grateful that she did i stayed in as ceo of the company for another 90 days and the plan was that i would step out and the number two behind me a guy named scott Fragon, would get promoted and he would become the ceo i also had the desire to work a little less at that point and scott spent scott spent i think it was six i think it was nine months that scott was in there before it became apparent that he and this private equity firm weren't getting along he wasn't the leader that they wanted and they weren't the partner that he wanted. And so I had a little bit of an impasse and the PE firm came back to me and said, hey, will you go back in as CEO? Which was exactly what I didn't want to do. And I told him, I said, well, if I was just going to have to stay in and run this thing, hell, I wouldn't have sold it to you. The whole goal was to get some freedom here, but I don't regret it. I went back in as CEO. At this point, you know, that transaction had transformed Cassie and I's lives in all the ways that you think it might. You know, you put tens of millions of dollars behind you, you all of a sudden have so much more confidence and comfort around and just ability to make decisions that you think are fun, that you think are just good for your career, that you think are just good ways to learn for your life. And I thought that going back in as CEO under a private equity firm was probably good education for me. And it wasn't about money. I didn't even ask for a pay raise. I just kept the same salary I'd had for a good number of years. I didn't even ask to participate in the MIUs. I just simply went back to work. And I, that was the hardest I probably had worked in a long time. I worked, I was in Kansas City every week, all week long while my family was in Florida. 
I ran that business for the PE firm for a full year before I finally went back to them. And I said, listen, guys, I don't want to work this hard. This is stable now. Let's go find a different CEO. And they did a very limited search. They actually had a guy that they thought would be perfect. And they were exactly right. He's been, he came in as CEO about the time COVID hit. I stepped into a role doing what I like. I told you I'm a transactionalist. They wanted to go on a buying spree and they put me as the, as an active executive chairman of the board. And, but as an active executive chairman, you're a W2 executive in the company. And so all I do is M&A. And so last year we acquired six companies. So one every, every two months. And that pace was kind of quickening. Are these still mobile dentists or are these, are, are you starting to acquire other related businesses too? Yeah. So the new CEO really, well, just before he came on, I had brought in the Horizon Sum and I had acquired a company called Senior Vision Services, which was the largest optometry provider in the nation to nursing homes. So we had already expanded into optometry three months before I brought him on. And so then we've kind of run with that. We built out optometry in a pretty big way. So dental optometry, and we've now branched out pretty heavily into audiology and through some partnerships into podiatry. And so the spectrum of services has quadrupled largely in the last two years. And so last year we did six, six acquisitions and that pace was quickening. And so this year we've already got four deals under LOI and Q1. And I think probably it slows down after that. I feel a little bit today, I'm a little bit hostage to the company in the sense that I kind of want to go do other stuff, but I'm also really building my own net worth because we rolled so much equity that every time I buy one of these, I'm, you know, I own a pretty good chunk of it myself. And so uh, I've stuck with it outside of this and sort of of particular interest to you and to your listeners. We at, at the beginning of last year, we set up a family office and we call that we've just continued with the name Linium Farms, which spawned from our initial 1800 acres that we bought. Yeah, I love that name. It has a yeah. has a good sound to it. <laughs> well, it doesn't fit in, which is great actually, because it gets a lot of attention. Everybody's so and so capital, you know, something capital, something funding, or whatever. And we're over here, Linium Farms. And they're like, "What the hell? <laughs> Why are you here?" You know. <laughs> but we, but it's also true to who we are. At this point in the state of Florida, we own a collection of, I think we're up to seventy five hundred acres of various farms that we own just outright that are what we call like, they're like our hedge money. You can't screw them up. If we take risky bets that don't work out, the hedge money is still just kind of ticking along. Land's going up in value. The trees are on them that are growing or the crops or whatever. And so it's a good way. It's a good way to hedge against pretty risky activity, which is what we're doing otherwise. And so in the past year, Linium Farms has, it spent $2 million on various searchers, both self-funded and traditional. And then it funded a series of, it invested in two accelerator programs, search funder accelerator programs. One of them's A111, one of them was Broadtree. You've probably heard of both of those. And then we also funded two accelerator program acquisitions. We did one of, them, one of the acquisitions in Broadtree and we, we've done an acquisition within, within A111 now as well. And so third, sort of third of where we're, where we're at today, and I'll, I'll not spoil it, but Cassie has decided she wants to go run a company again. I, I'm highly encouraging of that because she's super good at it. And she closed on her own business two weeks ago today in an e-commerce space. And I'll, uh, she hasn't made a formal announcement, so we won't, we won't talk about the name of the company, but we're super, super excited for her and happy for her to be able to dive back in and hang up sort of the, <laughs> the mom apron and get back into the business world. So that's pretty exciting. Yeah. Congrats to her. That's always a big step. You talked about investing in self-funded searchers, traditional searchers. Is that a place that you want to spend more time in over the next five years or so? Yes, absolutely. Like we, we think, well, first off, it's just fun to be in a community of entrepreneurs. You know, when you were at the SM Bash with us the other day, it's just such a room full of energy and excitement. And I'm 40 now and I've done quite a bit of acquisitions. I've done a, a good bit of entrepreneur activity. And so it, you can catch yourself feeling that that sparkle dull a little. And so I feel like staying in that space helps me keep that spark alive. It also helps fund it for those that still really have it. It's 
It's an energy that I enjoy. I think the returns are remarkable. And I feel like I've got something to offer for some of them. You know, I think there'll be some really cool board opportunities to sit on boards and, and provide advice and uh, mentoring to some of these folks as they strike off on their entrepreneurial endeavor. So, yeah, I think we'll stay in it. I think we'll also continue to do independent sponsor deals. I think Linium Farms will also continue to acquire wholesale, you know, just wholly own some of its um, investments. One Cassie recently bought, we bought 100% of that deal. I expect it to be all the way across the spectrum for, for us for a good number of years going forward. That's exciting. Yeah, definitely a, a good place to be surrounded by that entrepreneurial energy. Absolutely. Moving to closing questions, what college class would you teach if it could be about any subject you wanted? So I actually really like this question. That's a, a great one. I appreciate you you asking it. For me, it would be risk before responsibility. I would I would have a class named that that tries to drill into the head of of these kids that when they get out of college and they pop out a couple of kids and they get a job and an SUV and a house and baseball practice and all these other things that come along with responsibility that you build around your life you can't take risk anymore. Like you, you're toast. You're stuck in this rut that is, has immense gravity to it. And so the time to take risks is the time when I took risks, I was in college and I was doing stupid stuff like walking into a bank and saying, Hey, hand me your foreclosures. It's a dumb idea, but it, it worked. I made good money doing that. And I took risks at a very young age before I had responsibility an age where, frankly, if they if the risks had gone sour, I really wouldn't have cared. What are they going to do? Come take my I had a single cab Dodge Dakota with a dent in the door. So my class would be risk before responsibility. I like that one. What's a strongly held belief you've changed your mind on? Probably that all stations in life are equal. You know, we're raised with this mantra of you can be anything you want. If you can dream, you can achieve. But the reality is some people deserve a little better ladder than others. I'll give you an example. You know, you take Mitt Romney, who was born son of a governor who had $190 million net worth. Who do you think is more likely to become a governor himself and lead Bain Capital? Mitt Romney, who born, who's born into that situation, or some guy born into a mobile home park in Southern Alabama? I'm going to bet on Romney. And so this whole idea that, you know, those, like this just lateral application of if it just takes work and you can get there, sort of. Yes, you can. But we have to acknowledge that some people's station in life, where they're born into, just like the pure lottery of life, is has immense gravity against success. And these people, we should be building ladders as proponents of success for those folks. So that that's evolved as time's gone for me. Yeah, that's a big one. It's really surprising. It shouldn't be surprising, but it's it's incredible how many successful founders come from either well-off families or even wealthy families with lots of connections and. It's definitely a, a pattern that you notice after a while. What's the best business you've ever seen? Well, I think the best, this is the cliche answer, obviously, the best business that I've ever seen and it probably will exist in our lifetimes is Apple. But I think a better question for me is, what's the best run business that I've ever seen? And I would say for that, it's Chick-fil-A. Because I think I, I just honor a guy and an operation that can stay true to its core values, even when they don't align with profitability, like to give up on an entire one-seventh of your week a week, by the way, when everybody's at home and off of work, when your sales would be pretty freaking dominant. And to do so and dominate the space in a really grimy, hard space to run a good business, restaurants are hard. And to keep people happy and to keep people positive and to have the growth that they've had, staying core to the, uh, true to those core values, I, I think Chick-fil-A is the best run company I've ever seen. Yeah, that's an answer a few folks have given. And it's it's never... It's never oh, a dull answer. I There's gonna, oh, thought I was going to no, no, be no. original. <laughs> <laughs> no, no points for that today. But Chick-fil-A, yeah. yeah I, every time you've gone to a Chick-fil-A, there's lines. And of course, in Oregon, there's always lines. But here in Nebraska, I think they're a little more normalized. But everyone's always super friendly. It's always fast. Quality is the same everywhere you go. And yeah, the business they run is astonishing. There's quite a... We're having a, another guest on here pretty soon who has connections to Chick-fil-A and has learned a lot from them. So we're going to, there's a portion of our episode that we're going to talk specifically about Chick-fil-A. So I'm excited for that. But yeah, I look forward to that as well. I'll listen for that one. Yeah, that'll be fantastic. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been really, really fun to have you and hear your story and hear all the different 
near-death experiences that you've encountered. And it's exciting to see that you've made it through and have had some pretty amazing success. So thank you for sharing a little bit. Yeah, you're welcome. Absolutely. It's a pleasure to be here. And, and thank you for uh, thank you to you for creating spaces like this, opportunities like this for, for people like me to come and share share the story because it's it's fun to do and it's fun to listen to others and be inspired by that. So I I would say thank you back to you. Absolutely. And we'll have to have Cassie on here pretty soon too. I'm excited to have yeah, her absolutely. too. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving us a review and telling a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. I also want to thank our show's sponsors, Live Oak Bank, Put In Strong, and Oberly for their support. For full episode transcripts and more information, please visit our website at alexbridgman.com slash podcast. And if you want to learn more about The Operator's Handbook, please visit us at theoperatorshandbook.com and join your peers in the endless pursuit of better. Music.